Well, good morning, CBC. Uh, grace and peace to you. Um, we're a little bit ahead in the calendar. We covered the triumphal entry uh, a couple weeks ago, and today we are nearing Jesus' last hour, the crucifixion. And as the triumphal entry indicates, a peasant king on his donkey, um, Jesus is a different kind of king. He has not come to be served, lording it over us, but to serve. His kingship is not defined by worldly power and glory, which seems so impressive to us, but in humility and meekness. He ascends to his throne on the cross, wearing atop his head a crown of thorns, and above him the placard reads, This is the King of the Jews. So we honor our king today, not as those in the crowd that day, supposing him to be something that he's not, but in truth, he is the servant king, the lowborn king, the suffering king who rules from the cross. So our passage this morning begins with the scheming chief priests and scribes, namely, scheming how they might put Jesus to death. They have tried and failed already being humiliated in debate and controversy. And then the scripture says that they were afraid of the people. Now the root of their hatred toward Jesus was envy. He had nearly the entire population on his side. He had exposed the hypocrisy of the establishment. And now the chief priests and the scribes are thinking this might be it. They can feel their power and control slipping through their fingers And now, for them, is the time to act. Now is the time to take care of this would-be King Jesus. So as their desperation grows, and it becomes more deep-seated in their hearts, and their plans become more reckless, someone else, another enemy, spies his opportunity. Our passage says in verse 3, And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them, apart from the crowd. Now, Satan himself has not made a direct appearance in the story for quite some time. He's mentioned here and there, but he has not had a part to play since the temptation narrative. And you guys know the story there in the wilderness. Jesus was severely tested by Satan who tried to weaken his resolve and turn him from the cross. You can have it all, right? There's all the kingdoms of the world if you would but worship me. Ultimately, he was unsuccessful, but the scripture says when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Now, in the chief priest's growing malice, that opportune time has come. Satan entered into Judas, leading him, leading his pawn rather, to cut a deal with the chief priests and the scribes. In exchange for silver coins, he would betray his friend to 
his enemies, apart from the crowd. As the scripture says, even my close friend and whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And so like Ahithophel betrayed his friend David, like Judah betrayed his brother Joseph, so Judas betrayed his master Jesus. Now there's a subtle typology going on here. Judas is the Hellenized name for Judah. So Judas's name is just, it's just Judah. It's just the Greek name. So both Jesus and Joseph, who are said to be beloved of their father, were sold into slavery for silver pieces by someone named Judah. So Satan reappears in this passage. But this time he does not go away. As the decisive moment arrives, his workings, though always present, become more and more apparent. He already toppled Judas, and now he takes aim at Peter too. He demands to have him, that he may sift him like wheat, literally to pick him apart. Indeed, he will put all the disciples to test, to the test this night. Pray, Jesus says in the garden, that you may not enter into temptation, warning them. But one by one, every disciple falls away, forsaking him and leaving him alone. Now, this unprecedented and heightened satanic activity is most obvious in Jesus' instructions, ordering his disciples to get a money belt, a bag, and a sword. So, look with me, verse 35, it says, And he said to them, When I sent you out without a money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, No, nothing. And he said to them, But now, whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag, and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For that which refers to me, Jesus says, has its fulfillment. So, Jesus reminds them of their first missionary journey apart from him. He sent them out without normal provisions, money belts, bags, and even sandals. The disciples were to rely entirely upon God's provision expressed through the hospitality of others. But now, Jesus warns them, things are different. Rather than simply presuming that they're going to be cared for, they must care for themselves, gathering the necessary provisions and even a sword. There is a growing animosity in the air, threatening the disciples. So what accounts for this dramatic shift, but now, from an almost blissful carelessness? There go the disciples without anything at all. They're taken care of to this, now, this warlike mentality. What accounts for this? Well, there has been a momentous change in the distribution of power and authority, not merely on earth, but in heaven. Now, the reason, or the main reason, the disciples could venture out without provisions in the past was due to the fact that, the Scripture says, they were given power and authority over all Demons. So Jesus laid his hands on them, bestowing upon them this authority. Then he sent them out. And because of this authority, they were safe. The heavenly scales tipped in their favor. None could stand in their way. 
Thus they could take to the road without afterthought or fear. Indeed, they came back to Jesus with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Even the demons listen to us. The twelve lacked nothing then. But now, things are different. Such authority and power are not there to protect them. When Jesus is arrested, he says to the chief priests and elders, This hour and the power of darkness are yours. Now, there are two Greek words translated power in English, dunamis and exousia. Now, dunamis means power in the more traditional sense. Exousia is better translated authority or jurisdiction. And it's that word that is used here. Hence, the NIV's really good translation, this is your hour when darkness reigns, Jesus says. So something, as Jesus nears the cross, something without precedent is coming to pass. There is a concentration of malevolent spiritual power. This hour of darkness has been committed into the hands of Satan, and his authority and power are no longer restricted. Hence, the protection and provision Jesus and the disciples relied upon before is now gone. Get everything you possibly can. Prepare yourselves because this is different. They're left to themselves. They're exposed to the enemy's strength, a little bit like Job when the hedge of protection was pulled away and Satan was allowed to have his way with him. So a great and terrible time of testing has settled upon the city of Jerusalem with its focal point on Jesus and the disciples there in the Garden of Gethsemane. In short, there is an apocalyptic struggle between the powers, between one kingdom and another. Speaking of the cross in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. There is a struggle. And the prince of this world, the evil power that dominates humanity, will be cast out and cast down as Jesus goes to his cross. So, there in Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane, meaning the oil press, there the struggle begins. There this battle between the forces of darkness and the lone figure of Jesus Christ begins. So, the hour is in Satan's control, and the disciples are too. Jesus has informed them um, that one of them was going to betray him. And somehow, that argument, or that, that turned into an argument, rather, as to which of them was the greatest. So you can imagine them saying to one another, I will never betray him. It's not me. I'm the greatest. I'm the most courageous. It's probably you. But for whatever reason, and probably because he was the leader of the apostles, Peter was singled out. All right, Peter was addressed by Jesus, and he says to him, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, 
Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail in you. Once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go to prison and to death. So having just argued his greatness among the other disciples, Jesus informs Peter that he is going to stumble severely. And we can hear a touch of humiliation in his defiant words. I am ready to go to death. He's made his case and he can't back down from it now. And of course, buried in Peter's pride and humiliation is sincerity. Peter does love Jesus. He is willing to suffer and even die for his friend. But that night, he would be turned over to the enemy's malevolent hands. Satan demanded to have Peter, that he might sift him like wheat, just as he did with Job. Put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, Satan says to the Lord, taunting him. He will surely curse you to your face. So Peter's trust and his love and his loyalty are going to be tested that night. And such satanic testing, however, is not confined to Peter alone. Having left the upper room, Jesus and the disciples then journeyed to the Mount of Olives. And the scripture continues now in verse 39. When he arrived at that place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So the satanic temptation that presses upon the disciples is the temptation to forsake Jesus in his arrest and trial and crucifixion. The enemy intends to break their faith, and he intends, of course, to do the same in our lives. And as the terrible immensity of all of it begins to bear down upon Jesus, as he begins to suffer in the garden, as he's wrestling with his fate, his disciples, who he asked to stand by his side, have fallen fast asleep. Their hearts, the scripture says, had become weighed down with sorrow and anxiety. Right? You can only imagine what a change and shift this was for them. They came to Jerusalem thinking the kingdom of God was right around the corner. Now here's their master breaking down, literally falling apart before them in the garden. And they're overcome and they sleep. Now I can't help but thinking of the first man, Adam. In this case, he was placed in the garden to tend and keep it, the scripture says. Now, rather than merely care, keep implies guarding. It implies watching. He was in there to tend and keep the garden. So Adam was placed in the garden like the chief, or rather like the priests, 
were um, in the temple. He was in the garden to defend it from any defiling presence being a holy space as it was. And when that presence came in the form of the serpent, where was Adam? Well, the scripture doesn't say, but the point is, he abdicated his responsibility. While the moment of temptation descended upon the garden, while Adam was to keep the garden, he slept. Now in another garden, the disciples are charged with the same responsibility. Stay awake, pray with me. They, like their father, also slept in the moment of decision. So Jesus agonized over the cross, over our redemption, while we slept. It is his work, and we have no part in it. Indeed, we hardly even entered the struggle as soon as we clasped our hands to pray, sleep overcame us. Our hearts were too weighted down by sin and death to do a thing. While we slept, another struggled. Right? While we dozed off, another contended on our behalf. As the scripture says, Isaiah 53 verse 12, And he poured out himself to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. So having made intercession for us, our sleep is not counted against us. We can be awakened into new life. And so as Jesus woke his slumbering disciples, he was interrupted. Judas, with the crowd behind him, entered the garden and proceeded to Jesus to kiss him. And when the disciples realized what was going on, they acted. When they realized that their master was going to be taken, Peter drew the sword, the scripture says, and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus then disarmed his disciples and healed the slave's ear. Rather than evading the purpose for which he had come, he gave himself freely into their custody. Jesus was arrested and the scripture says, they all fled They all left him and fled. All of them, that is, except Peter. He was following at a distance, our passage says. Now the call to discipleship from the very beginning, from the moment that Jesus declared his identity, was to take up one's cross and follow him. You remember Peter was the one who got it right. Who do You say that I am. Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, that's right, Peter. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father and heaven. And then he proceeds to tell them, this is what it means for me to be the Christ. I'm going to the cross. Peter says, Lord, may it never be. And he says, get behind me, Satan. And then he tells him, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross and take the same road. So Jesus' road... It was told to the disciples in no uncertain terms, ends in the crucifixion. And in claiming him, his disciples must be prepared to go to the cross as well. And that time has now come, right? That moment for which the disciples were being prepared has arrived. And Peter, who promised, who was ready to lay his life down, now follows at a distance. His fear and his self-preservation instinct kept him from taking up his cross and 
sharing in Jesus' sufferings. Yet we all follow at a distance. In the decisive moment, each one has done the same thing. Into our discipleship saying, I'm ready to go to death, we mingle in our own plans and purposes. We keep our distance. And the thing that we fear is sharing in the cross. That is taking it up and denying ourselves. Saying no to whatever it might be. So certain relationships and habits and thoughts straggle behind and they weigh us down and keep us at a distance. So we don't stand above Peter, but with him at a distance. And through the darkness, Jesus was brought to the high priest's house, where there they intended to invent grounds on which to charge him in order to send him off to execution. And not too far, not too far away, within eyesight distance, sitting beside the fire, keeping warm, was Peter. And the scripture says, verse 56, And the servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight, was looking intently at him. Uh, And she said, This man was with him too, but he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And about an hour had passed. Another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So there we are with Peter. Apart from the divine protection, there's no need for a severe contest. There's no need for an extended wave of temptations and assaults. Because at the slightest breeze, at the mere rustling of a leaf, our house of cards comes crashing down. Summoned to deny ourselves and remain beside our master, we instead deny him. The servant girl comes to us, whatever or whoever she may be, each one knows, and we say, I do not know the man. And when Peter said those words, the scripture says that the Lord turned and looked at him. And it was a look that penetrated through Peter like the two-edged sword of the word, piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of both, of both joints and marrows and able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. In that look, Peter saw the man that he was that beneath his outward courage and bravado and loyalty, there was a hidden treachery that was there. And that same gaze, that same look is cast upon us. Jesus looks at us. His eyes see everything that we've done, the person that we've become, no matter what we tell ourselves. He sees us as we are, more clearly than we see ourselves. And his look, like it did to Peter, conveys the truth about who we are. It prompts us to give up our self-deception, our our image of thinking, I'm ready to go to death, I'm this or that or the other, and it teaches us the truth. 
So in that one look, Jesus exposes us for all that we are. Yet Jesus' look, as devastating as that was, you could imagine for Peter, is not a look of pure judgment. There is forgiveness. Remember what he says to him. When you have turned, strengthen your brothers. That there's hope on the far side of all this for Peter and for us. But it comes at a price. So as the moment of satanic testing comes, all fall away. Everybody. Jesus is left alone. And only he remains. Our love and loyalty crumbles the moment that it's drilled into and tested. It has no stand to make before the powers of darkness. And we learn in the Apostle Peter's threefold denial how absolutely within the grip of the enemy we are. Helpless and desolate, ready to deny our Christ when a servant grill girl opposes us. So we need someone to stand for us against the spiritual forces that dominate us. And Jesus makes intercession for us. In the garden, he instructed his disciples to pray lest they enter into temptation. Yet, it is he who bore the strength and severity of that temptation He was in agony, the scripture says, praying very fervently, his sweat becoming like great drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Now, agony in the original language is the word um, agonia, and it comes from the root word agon, which means combat or struggle or contest. Jesus' passion in the garden, his agony as he prays, is his resistance against the evil forces that have overcome us. So this temptation here in the garden and the wilderness temptation correspond to one another. Again, there Satan tried to divert Jesus from the cross, tempting him with lordship. You can have it all. Just worship me at the price of apostasy. And unable to overcome him, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, Jesus says. Unable to overcome him, the scripture says he departed for an opportune time. He left, looking for when he might find the moment of weakness and put Jesus to the test once more. And now in the garden, as Jesus is alone, as the whole weight of the cross is bearing down upon him, that time has come. In the garden, Jesus endures the entire weight of satanic opposition leveled against him. A power none has experienced, nor shall ever again experience, is meted out upon him. And what is the enemy's power? What is it that Jesus is facing there in the garden? The enemy's power is the power to weaken Jesus' will. The, The issue at hand in the garden is not some open warfare, but the terrible struggle for obedience. Jesus' soul is in travail to the point of death, the scripture says, as he hangs on through every dark temptation. Every opportunity of escape that's presented to him by the enemy. And if you've ever been severely tempted, as no doubt you have, you know how terrible and subtle the power of evil is. 
how, how deceiving it is, and it just draws you in, and, and before you know it, you're captured. You know the weakness that it breeds in your heart. You feel like you're being sifted like wheat, right? Like Peter. And there's Jesus experiencing the full weight of that. Something we could never imagine because we give in so quickly. There's Jesus putting up his defense and taking all of it. And so we praise verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. In these mighty, saving words, Jesus gathers within his human nature the entirety of our weakness and obstinacy, obstinacy and overcomes it. To our, my will be done, he prays in our place, yours be done. He says for us, the words that we neither have the power nor the desire to say. In his fearsome and mighty, yours be done, the entirety of our dark and disobedient history is triumphed over and soon to be forgotten. Yours be done. So on our behalf, Jesus takes the cup from the Father's hand and drinks it down. The scripture says that after his struggle, he rose from prayer. He rose from the terrible struggle victorious, having bested the enemy for the last time. Jesus will go to the cross. He will bear the curse. He will make atonement. Thus the scripture is fulfilled. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn my back. I gave my back to those who strike me, my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know I will not be ashamed. So here, we depart from Jesus as he nears the cross. He goes alone. And like the disciples, we can only watch from a distance. His obedience and his suffering in the garden and on the cross are impenetrable to us. It is that black and unvisitable place that only he knows from eternity. That private and secret pain older than the world. And there he goes for us. Now on their own, as these events were experienced by the disciples... They could have only been read as the senseless and tragic death of their master. We're given no indication that the disciples understood anything of what was going on that night. Their hopes were shattered. Their expectations were pulverized. And they were left lost and afraid and despairing. And though the disciples had yet to understand it, Though that's the way things appeared to them, it was not so. In the upper room, in the institution of the supper, Jesus gave his death meaning. 
right? He interpreted it for us. And it's interesting, there are very few places in Jesus' own words where he describes what the cross is all about. Probably a few paragraphs. He's going to die as a ransom for many. Now I'm lifted up, I'm going to draw all men to myself, right? They're there, but they're small, enigmatic, hard-to-understand statements. The disciples didn't get them, but when he wants us to understand what what he's doing on the cross, he doesn't give us words, Jesus does, but he gives us a meal. Luke chapter 22, verse 19, there in the upper room, it says, And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus' life, make no mistake, was not taken from him. He was not merely the victim of envy and hatred. Freely and of his own accord, he laid down his life on the cross. His body, broken and mutilated upon the cross, and which he bore our sins, is given, he says, for you. And his blood, shed on the cross to make atonement, is poured out, he says, for you, for us, and for our salvation, Jesus suffered and died. After giving the disciples the meaning of what was being done, um, like I said, in a, in a similar in, uh, interruption, the disciples break out into an argument, and they're arguing about which one of them is the greatest. Now, they clearly missed the point of everything Jesus was teaching them, but they'll come around in time. And so Jesus asks them, who's greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? So who's greater, the one who sits down to eat and is served, or the waiter, or whoever it may be who comes by and attends to the meal. Which one is it? Jesus says, is it not the one who reclines at the table? Right, the one who sits down. But he says, but I am among you as one who serves. Jesus is the king who serves. He gathered his disciples around the table that night, and he served them. He took the Passover meal, and he transformed it. And he fulfilled it. He served them his own body in the bread and his own blood in the cup. And summoned by Jesus, here we are also gathered around his table. Our supper that we celebrate every week is a reenactment, a remembrance of those events in the upper room. Jesus is among us as one who serves. And he serves us his body and blood, that we might live. So let's pray.